Well, I invite you to turn your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 13. We'll be studying verses 4 through 12 this morning. And we're really uh, beginning to look at Paul's first missionary journey as he's being sent out by the church at Antioch after being commissioned by the Holy Spirit. So let me begin reading Acts chapter 13. I'll read verses 4 through 12. And since I'm reading the inspired Word of God, please give careful attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. Verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the Word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John as their helper. This would be John Mark the cousin of Barnabas. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who is also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. And may God bless the reading of his word. Well, Barnabas and Saul had been commissioned by the Holy Spirit, then commissioned by the church, and now it's time to light the fuse and shoot them out like a Roman candle into the Roman Empire. I'm sorry, I'm still in July the 4th mode. So they're about ready to be shot out of the church of Antioch to carry the light of the gospel into the domain of darkness. And so that's basically what's being taken place in our passage. So let's begin by looking at how the Holy Spirit puts His eye first off on the island of Cyprus. Notice verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Now from Antioch, Seleucia is the port city about 15 miles away. And from there they're going to sail to Salamis on the island of Cyprus, which is about 150 miles uh, journey that they would have to sail. So they're being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, not pr- even though they're being sent out by the church of Antioch, Luke records they're being sent by the Holy Spirit to emphasize the sovereignty, the control, the initiative of the Holy Spirit in all of this missionary endeavor. 
So they're being launched on the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. So the island of Cyprus is, uh, is interesting. Why did they go there as their first stop? Well, Cyprus was uh, a very lush island with crops. It was rich in minerals and precious metals. It was a favorite stopover for merchant ships in the Mediterranean Sea. Kind of had the reputation of being a fantasy island, kind of like Hawaii due to its favorable climate. So it was a very popular place to go. But uh, we're not really told why they went to Cyprus, but we do know that Barnabas is a Cyprian, a Levite of Cyprian birth. So he was born here. So Barnabas probably still has relatives on the island. He may very well have contacts on the island. And he has a big heart to reach the island with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, they would not be the first Christians to arrive in Cyprus. Uh, We know that during the persecution of Stephen that we saw earlier in the book of Acts, some of the believers fled and they fled to Cyprus. So there are other Christians that are here. So they're not the very first Christians, but obviously the whole island has not been reached for Christ. And Paul's compassion was to go where the gospel had not yet been preached. So there are parts of the island that have not yet uh, been preached to as far as they know. So uh, they're heading to Cyprus, which again is basically Barnabas's home country. Now Luke is very selective in what he's reporting to us. He doesn't give us all the details of everything that happened, but the things that he does indicate really shows us what's important in light of the Holy Spirit's view of all of this. So we notice in verse 4 and and 5 that when they reached Salamis, which is on the east coast of Cyprus, they began to proclaim the Word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. So notice what they are preaching. They are preaching the Word of God. In other words, they are bringing the Old Testament Scriptures plus the teachings of Christ, which would be the only... Uh, scripture they probably had at this point of Christ's teachings. And that was the Word of God. That's what they were proclaiming. So that this whole ministry is a, is a Scripture-drenched, Spirit-empowered ministry. And they were preaching Christ crucified and risen from the dead and now seated at the Father's right hand. They're bringing the Word of God, exposing the Old Testament, the Gospel of Christ found throughout the Old Testament. They are proclaiming the Word of God, the inspired Word of God uh, to these people. Where do they preach? Well, we're told in verse 5, they preached, they began by preaching in the synagogues of the Jews. Now, if you look at... um, Again, Cyprus, the island, there's a lot of towns scattered throughout there. They're eventually going to make their way to Paphos on the west side of the island. But they begin by proclaiming the Word of God in the synagogues. Now, why did they start there? Well, both Barnabas and Saul are Jews. Uh, Obviously, uh, Paul believes in this understanding that you go to the Jew first and then to the Greek. So the synagogues were always uh, the first on the list of places to preach. And they go to the synagogues because uh, they 
obviously were people who had the Old Testament Scriptures. They had knowledge of the Old Testament. And they would be a place of gathered Jews. So it would be prime a prime audience for preaching the Gospel from the Old Testament to Jews. So it just, it just made sense. Uh, Cyprus, again, was a refuge for Jews for centuries before Christ. So there are a number of synagogues that cropped up on the island. By the way, the synagogues probably originated uh, in the period of the Babylonian captivity. There's still some debate about that. But after the uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, there was needed to have a local place of worship and assembly. So probably at that time, the Jews, particularly those who were scattered out of the Holy Land, began to build these synagogues where they would meet for worship and instruction. Now the word synagogue basically just means a gathering of people. It eventually began to be used for the place of the gathering. And the Jewish sources said that you normally needed to have at least 10 Jewish men in an area before uh, they could actually establish a new synagogue. The synagogue helped maintain the Jewish identity as they lived out in all these uh, pagan lands in the Roman Empire. But it also functioned as their community center. The center of the Jewish social life. Because the synagogue, you see, was their prime meeting place. It became their school, their courtroom, their place of collecting charity and distributing charity, and also a place of study and prayer, as well as meeting on the Sabbath for the worship of God. And uh, they even have uh, thought that the synagogues were places where they would provide lodging for travelers. So Barnabas and Saul very well could have stayed in, in synagogues. Synagogues have been called the cradle of Christianity. And then again, because when they visited a synagogue, there was already a ready-made pulpit, if you will, and an audience familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures to hear the truth about Jesus Christ. So it really was the cradle, the beginning place for Christianity. And then we're told in verse 6, and by the way, this is a synagogue, a picture of a of a first century synagogue. This one was actually excavated in the Golan Heights, so not on the island of Cyprus, but in the Golan Heights. You can kind of see the general makeout of a synagogue. You can see the steps along the side. By the way, this makes sense in James 2, when James condemns the partiality among the Jews. And he says, when some of them say, hey, you come here and sit by my feet, Because the common people would normally sit out here in the center and the more leading individuals, the more wealthy individuals would sit along these tiered seats along the corners, along the outside walls of the synagogue. So this uh, this would make sense. But this is kind of the shape of what uh, a synagogue might look like. Well, they eventually make their way to Paphos in verse 6. And obviously because of the mountain range in Cyprus, they had to kind of go around along the coast. But we're told in verse 6 that when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus. So they've made their way to Paphos. And uh, so they've basically gone through pretty much the whole island. We don't know how long it took them. We don't know all the different places they stopped at but they make their way to the western side of the island. 
Now, Paphos was a very important Roman city. It became the seat of the military government. And the uh, Roman uh, leader established his residence there. And he was called a proconsul. And here his name is given to us as Sergius Paulus. Now, we're also told briefly in verse 5 that uh, John is their helper. John also has traveled with them to the island. Again, this is Barnabas' cousin. Notice he's called a helper. And that word in the Greek can kind of have many different nuances. It can refer to a servant or an assistant to all kinds of people. An assistant to a doctor, an assistant to an army officer, an assistant to a priest, or to a politician. So, John Mark is uh, joining them, and we really don't know what his function is, whether it's more practical in terms of uh, cooking food, maybe he's a great cook, we don't know, or maybe it was spiritual to do counseling, maybe he was an apprentice and a trainee, again, it's not really told, but he's there to help. Maybe there were others in addition to John Mark, but the the Holy Spirit uh, uh, mentions him, and there's a reason for that, as we'll get into Uh, later on. So now in verse 6, once they get there, we are told that there is a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus. So here's this individual that's there in Paphos, and we're also told that he's with the proconsul in verse 7, So he has a great influence upon the leading political Roman governor of the island. Notice he's called a magician. Again, that word is kind of nebulous. Uh, This is the same word used for magi in Matthew chapter 2 of the magi that came and worshipped baby Jesus and brought their gifts of gold and, and myrrh and frankincense. But uh, the Magi basically were experts in astrology. Uh, They were experts in studying the stars. And some of them also brought in religious and occultic uh, emphases in that as well. So although the Magi that worshipped Jesus, no doubt came to a clear understanding, probably from the Scriptures left by Daniel when he was in the Persian Empire, But uh, this guy probably dabbles in magic and witchcraft and the occult arts. He may have claimed to be a fortune teller to be able to interpret dreams. And he claimed to have divine insight into the affairs of the state and of the island, probably. Notice he's also described as a Jewish false prophet in verse 6. So he was also a Jew... But he was a false prophet, meaning he claimed to receive direct revelation from God, which was really only lies of the devil. His name is also Bar-Jesus, which is Aramaic for Son of Jesus. And Jesus means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. And to take this name Bar-Jesus, not sure if he had ever heard of Jesus Christ or not, Uh, Jesus was a common Jewish name back then. So for whatever reason, he takes the name Bar-Jesus or Son of Jesus. We really don't know why. But in verse 8, he's also called Elymas or Elymas. 
And that's an Arabic title for magician or wise man, something of that nature. Now notice in verse 7, again, he's with the proconsul. So he's a close advisor to the most powerful man on the island, the political Roman leader. He's a counselor, a close advisor to Sergius Paulus. Now, Sergius Paulus in verse 7 is described as a man of intelligence, which means he was an educated man. He loved knowledge. He delighted to surround himself with experts in all areas of knowledge. And so obviously he would be interested in a man like Bar-Jesus or Elymas. Uh, Sergius Paulus, uh, again, was a proconsul. And that in this day and age, uh, he was uh, given that title by the Roman Senate. And the Senate would entrust into the proconsul, into his hands, absolute military and judicial authority in that province. So Sergius Paulus was an extremely powerful man. His, his word was law. And if you broke it, you could be in deep, serious trouble. But the Spirit of God is at work. Because we see in verse 7 that He summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the Word of God. Apparently, He had heard about their preaching ministry and they're drawn to it. And, and He wants to learn more. He's a man of intelligence. I've never heard about this before. I'm interested. Bring them to me. I want to hear what they have to say. Now, at this point, Elymas saw in these Christian missionaries a threat to not only his own prestige, but to his own livelihood. Because if what they say is true, he's going to be exposed for what he really is. His authority and influence over the proconsul will be diminished drastically as his salary and perks of that position. So he sees it as a threat. And so we read in verse 8, that Elymas, the magician, was opposing them, opposing Barnabas and Saul, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So he's opposing the gospel. The same word for oppose, Paul uses in 2 Timothy 3 of Janus and Jambers, who opposed Moses. As men who were opposed to the truth, men of depraved mind who were rejected in regard to the faith, Paul describes them. Same word is used here. So just as Janus and Jambers opposed Moses before the court of Pharaoh, so Elymas opposed Barnabas and Saul before the proconsul. So he probably used everything he could to undermine the authority of the gospel that they were being that they were preaching. He probably tried to find fault with the message. He probably tried to contradict it. He said it was unscientific. It wasn't it was contrary to the accepted norms of reason and Greek and Roman philosophy and religion. This is strange stuff. They are basically bringing false news or fake news. They're full of myths and unreliable rumors. Don't believe a word they're saying. It's probably what he was trying to whisper into the ear of the proconsul. Besides, you're an important man. 
you have too many important things to do and you don't have time to waste to listening to these two babblers of strange religions and God. So in the process, he's trying, verse 8, to turn away the proconsul from the Word of God, from the faith. It's interesting, that word turn away in verse 8 is exactly the same Greek word that's going to be used uh, later on in verse 10, which is translated there as crooked. Crooked. So what Elymas was really trying to do is to lead Sergius Paulus down a crooked path of lies and distortion, a false gospel. He's resisting the Holy Spirit. He's full of the spirit of Antichrist. And he's trying to turn away the proconsul. Trying to make him follow a lie, a crooked way. That's his, that's his intention. But now in verses 9 through 11, Saul, who is now called Paul, is filled with the Holy Spirit and deals with the opposition to the gospel. In verse 9, but Saul, who is also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight paths, the straight ways of the Lord? It's interesting here that, again, in the Greek, the name, Paul's name is now identified from Saul to Paul. And that word in the Greek, that name in the Greek, Paul, is exactly the same name as Sergius Paulus. Sergius Paulus is just a transliteration of the Greek. Paul is the translation of the Greek. Exactly the same word. So God is going to use one Paul to save another Paul. That's what He's doing here. So what's interesting is that now, Luke records for us in verse 9 that Saul has another name, Paul. And from this point on, Luke is going to refer to him as Paul. Saul is his Hebrew name. Very appropriate when he's ministering among the Jews to use a Hebrew name. Paul is his Roman or Greek name. Paul was a Roman citizen, remember. So he would have those two names both. And Paul was his Greek or Roman name, which would be mainly used when he's ministering to Gentiles and Greeks. And Paul, uh, Luke, excuse me, is mentioning this switch in the names because there's a major switch in the ministry. Because by going directly to Sergius Paulus, a Gentile, Sergius Paulus, a Roman, Greek probably, that we find a major transition in the gospel ministry. And so that's going to come up very powerful throughout the book of Acts. It's appropriate for Luke to make this change because here he's primarily following Paul's ministry among the Gentiles and Sergius Paulus is a Gentile. See, this is Christ has, remember in John 10, Christ has other sheep that are not of this fold, not of this Jewish fold. He has other sheep, that is Gentile sheep. And so Paul's ministry, primarily as the apostle to the Gentiles, is going to primarily be known by his name Paul, because that fits with the nature of his ministry uh, to the Gentiles. 
And again, this is a major leap forward because Saul, who had been basically in obscurity for 12 years, most of that in Tarsus, then a year or two in Antioch, is now being launched 12 years after he received his call on the road to Damascus. 12 years after he clearly was told by Jesus that he was going to take his name out to the Gentiles and the Jews and the kings. Twelve years, God is now finally activating that call in the life of the Apostle. So his name is appropriately switched from Saul to Paul as we follow his ministry among the Gentiles. So the Spirit of God fills Paul and empowers him to do probably the very first miracle or supernatural act that Paul has done in his ministry so far. There's no indication that he performed any miracles up to this point in time. He may have. The Spirit just doesn't record that for us. But here we find suddenly he's, being, he's blossoming out into the fullness of his call from Christ to be an apostle. Including the miraculous gifts of the apostle. Because he's going to prophesy and God will use him to bring a judgment, a supernatural act of judgment upon um, this uh, false prophet. So notice Paul sees Elymas' opposition as an extremely serious attack by Satan on the gospel of Christ. And he's going to deal with it quickly and he's going to deal with it thoroughly. Notice in verse 9, Paul filled with the Holy Spirit fixed his gaze on him. This is a gaze full of the Holy Spirit fire which could melt ice. I mean, how would you like to have the Apostle Paul stare at you the way he's staring at, at uh, Elymas? Not something you'd want to have someone look at you this way. He was filled with the Spirit of God. He was filled with the holy zeal for the Gospel of Christ. And here's a man opposing the Gospel. And he puts that gaze right on him. And then he speaks out, You are full of all deceit and fraud. Full of all deceit and fraud. In other words, you are a total charlatan. You're a complete imposter. You're nothing but a fake, a phony, a sham, a counterfeit, a con artist, a swindler, full of trickery and deception. You are overflowing. You are full of all deceit and fraud. You're overflowing with lies. Now obviously the Spirit of God is giving Paul the ability to look right into the heart of this Jewish false prophet. So he's not just trying to be mean-spirited. The Spirit of God is speaking through the Apostle, telling him exactly what he is in the eyes of God. And he says, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. And this is to point out the deceptive hypocrisy of his name. He calls himself Bar-Jesus, but he has nothing to do with the Jesus that we are proclaiming to you. He claims to be a son of Jesus, for that's what his name means. But he's not a son of Jesus. He's a son of the devil. You can see how the Apostle Paul is just confronting him in his face. 
pointing out the deceptive hypocrisy of his name. He's really the son of the devil. And then he says that he's an enemy of all righteousness, which means that basically he's an ally of all unrighteousness. That's his ministry. And then he says, Will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now that should echo in your mind. Who was it that came to make straight the ways of the Lord? John the Baptist. Out of a prophecy of Isaiah, John the Baptist came to make straight the ways of the Lord. And that means basically to prepare the hearts through repentance and faith to receive and welcome the coming of the Messiah. Make straight the ways of the Lord. And that fits with basically how they would welcome a dignitary into a city. They'd go out and clean out all the clutter, pick out all the trash, smooth out the road, try to make it as straight to honor the dignitary coming into the city. And figuratively, that's to be fulfilled spiritually within the heart of the sinner. And he says, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? We're preaching the straight ways of the Lord. You're trying to make it crooked. You're trying to twist it. You're trying to throw up roadblocks and obstacles in the way of Sergius Paulus to prevent him from receiving the Gospel. In other words, you're no straight shooter, Elymas. You've taken God's truth and twisted it and bent it and distorted it into lies. And whereas Paul was seeking the proconsul's conversion... Elymas was seeking his perversion. And then in verse 11, we find the pronouncement of judgment. Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. So now notice, the hand of the Lord is upon you. He's speaking as a Spirit-filled prophet of God. He's saying the hand of the Lord is upon you and the hand of the Lord came upon him. This statement, this judgment of blindness is both just and fitting because he who tried to blind the eyes of the proconsul is now being blinded by God. And it's God's hand that is doing it. But notice the mercy here even that it wasn't a permanent blindness it was that they would be that he would be blind for a time and we don't know what came of that but eventually the lord lifted his hand of judgment luke uh, we know who's writing this account is a physician and when he speaks of this mist and darkness in verse 11 those are two technical medical terms that a physician would know It was used in some of the various uh, uh, medical literature of that day to refer to blindness as a mist in the eyes and, and a darkness that they cannot see. So it tips his hand as to his profession as a physician. But Elymas, you see, plays the part of the birds in Jesus' parable of the four soils. When the seed falls on the roadside soil and the birds come down and they gobble up the seed... And that's what Elymas is trying to do. And Jesus interpreted that by saying that the birds are really the devil 
who comes and takes away the Word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. That's what, that's what Elymas is trying to do to Sergius Paulus. He's trying to take away the Word, take away the seed, so he won't believe and be saved. But he will fail because the Holy Spirit has set his sights on Sergius Paulus for salvation. So Elymas is really a picture of Satan who hates the Word of God. And Satan hates Scripture. He has always hated it. He rebelled against the Word of God in heaven. He has always sought to undermine, to discredit, to discount, and to turn people away from the message of the Gospel. And Elymas, by the way, is alive and well today. Satan will always be trying to undermine the authority and power of God's Word in our life. He'll do it in the lives of unbelievers, and he'll do it in the lives of believers if he can. He will challenge the authority of Scripture. He'll create doubts and confusion over what the clear message of the Gospel is. Remember, Satan told Eve in the garden, has God indeed said that you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? He distorts what God had said. And then he says, surely you will not die. He outright denies what God has said. That's his operation. That's his mode. That's what he's always about. He hates God and he hates the Word of God. And he'll do anything that he can to drive a crowbar between you and the Word of God. Because he hates it. He knows the power of Scripture in the life of a humble heart where the Spirit of God is at work. And he wants to try to separate people from God's Holy Word. And Satan does that today through sophisticated academic elites who poo-poo the miracles of Scripture. The scoffers today who laugh at the coming judgment. There's no coming judgment. Or the deceived who mock us for saying that Jesus is the only way and there's absolutely no other one who can save you. No other religion but the Lord Jesus Christ. And they mock us for saying that. And they try to imitate intimidate us with their own unbelief and convince us that to be a Bible-believing Christian is one of the most foolish types of people you can be. Satan will also bring a barrage of circumstances into our life to make us doubt the promises of Scripture. You have a lot of troubles, a lot of pain, a lot of difficulties in your life. God, do you really love me like you tell me you do in the Word of God? Are you really with me? Are you really going to turn this into good? And Satan will begin to whisper and use whatever he can to make us doubt the promises of God's love and faithfulness to his children. So he'll send trials and troubles and losses and pains of every kind imaginable he will try to send them your way to discourage you and to wear you down so you begin to question the word of god and if satan can't create doubts or outright deny the scriptures he will just oppose it in our lives he will try to separate us from the word of god he'll try to get us to lay down our sword 
the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, so that now our armor is deficient. He will come and discourage us and He'll use the world all around us to distract us so that we just somehow, you know, I haven't read my Bible in a week. Why? Well, you know, I've had so many things to do. Life has been so busy and I just, you know, and besides, you know, I'm into all this media and all the advertising, Facebook, literature, Hollywood, and I just don't have time to read the Bible somehow. And He'll give you all the excuses that you want for neglecting to spend time in God's Word. He will try to distract us with just the busyness of life and all the responsibilities that I have at work and everything else that's going on in my life, all the other activities, so that I just don't find time. You know, that happened to two of our Lord's very closest dear friends. And this is what He said to the one who was so distracted in her life. When he said, Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. For there's only one thing that is necessary, and that's spending time, like Mary was doing, sitting at the feet of Jesus, Renewing her mind by hearing the words of Christ. The Scriptures are our mighty sword to defend us against Satan's attacks. It has the power to strengthen us. It has the power to encourage us. It has the power to give us victory over our attacks. But we must be renewing our mind in Scripture regularly for that power to be accessible for the Spirit to bless us. Maybe we should say to some of those things at work, some of those burdens, some of those distractions in our life, some of the things that are preventing us from spending time in Scripture, maybe we should say, as the Apostle Paul said to them, you son of the devil, you enemy of all unrighteousness, how long will you continue to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord. I think sometimes we need to identify what is it that's preventing me from spending time in the Word of God and see it possibly as a subtle, sneaky attack of the enemy of God, Satan himself, to undermine and separate us from the Word of God. That's Elemas. Elemas. He's alive and well today within the world and within the church. And though Satan opposes Scripture wherever it is proclaimed, we can thank God that He will not prevail. He will not win in the end in the hearts of His chosen ones. Because in all of these things, all of these trials, all these difficulties, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. And much of that is through bringing us back to the Word. So don't let Satan take the Word of God out of your hand. Or out of your heart. And regardless of your trials, fight to stay in the Word. To make it a priority. And do not be alarmed in your life when Jesus seems to be asleep in the boat. As sometimes He appears to be when the wind and the waves and the trials of our life are battering us left and right. 
Yes, call out to Him in the midst of your distress. Yes, renew your mind in the Word of God. And yes, trust that at the right time He will rise up and speak peace to the wind and the waves. Satan will do all he can to douse the flame of God's Word in your life. Because Elemas is still with us. But Christ stands behind the wall to pour in the oil of His Spirit to keep the flame alive. Well, finally, in verse 12, the proconsul believed when he saw uh, what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. So Sergius Paulus, in spite of all of Elymas's attempts to turn him away, the Spirit of God is using the Word of God and using this incredible miracle of striking down Elymas and striking him blind and the combination of the miracle of judgment and hearing the teaching of the Lord, the proconsul came to faith in Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting. There's been some... Um, there's, uh, let me see. Yeah. There's been some inscriptions of Sergius Paulus found that date back to this time. And uh, you can kind of see the poly there in the middle. The V is actually in Greek a U. And then Sergius, you kind of see half the name of Sergius. And there's been several of these inscriptions about this man that have been discovered. And apparently he owned a lot of land up around Antioch Pisidian. And isn't it interesting that once they leave Paphos, they make a, a, a straight shot up for Antioch Pisidian. Because possibly, this is all conjecture, but he still had family up there. He owned a lot of land up there, so they say. And he wanted Paul now to take this gospel that he had heard and believed to his family and his friends back up in his hometown. There's also an inscription with his name on it found in Rome where he was demoted. And that might even make sense because once he becomes a Christian, he very well could have lost his status and rank in the Roman government. Interesting. But God has mildly saved this man and has brought him to a, a knowledge of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. He's amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Notice that Luke doesn't say the teaching of Paul he recognized that what Paul and, and Barnabas was preaching was of the Lord. It was the Word of the Lord. And he probably saw it in Scripture as well. John Stott sees the conversion of Sergius Paulus as the first totally Gentile convert who had no religious background in Judaism. And this direct approach to Gentiles becomes the great innovation of the first missionary journey so that there's also hope for the conversion of powerful political politicians like this man. So we should pray for our civil leaders, right? God can still save them. But the glory goes to God because Christ is building His church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The Holy Spirit defeated the unholy spirit. The apostle defeated the false prophet. And the gospel triumphed over the occult. And this is the great commission. This is the gospel going out in the power of the Spirit of God. And sinners are being saved by, by God's grace. In closing, all this really tells us that 
The heart of the Godhead is for missions. And to have our hearts synced with the heart of Christ is to have a heart for missions. And Christ came to die to save His elect scattered throughout all the nations of the earth. We don't know who they are, but Christ tells us to go out into all the nations and preach the Gospel. Because it's through missions, it's through evangelism that He calls His own into fellowship with Him. I like this uh, quote by Derek Thomas in his commentary on Acts. He says, not having a heart for missions is the same as not having a heart for Jesus Christ. Think about that. It shows an indifference to what brought the Savior into the world and what drove Him to the cross. Missions is the heart of God. It is the beating pulse of the Almighty for the lost souls of men and women. To be cold toward missions reveals an indifference to what lies at the very center of God Himself. Very profound and challenging words indeed. Well, as we turn our attention now to the Lord's Supper, we really see that this whole focus on missions is, is appropriate for our celebration of the Lord's Supper. You know, when we come before the Lord and we partake of the elements of the bread and the wine, there are several things that we should keep in our mind. Obviously, the main focus of Jesus is to do this in remembrance of me. And we are to, to use this as a time of thanksgiving. And that's why it's also called the Eucharist, which means thanksgiving. That we should, we should review in our own mind our own sins. That we deserve the judgment and the wrath of God. But God in love sent His only begotten Son to die in the place as our substitute and bear the wrath of God that we should bear in hell. So the Lord's Supper, therefore, is only for believers. But in addition to thanking God for saving me and to thanking Christ for His love to come and die and sacrifice Himself on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins... I need to be thankful for those who brought the Gospel to me as well. The human means that God used to bring me to a saving knowledge of Christ. And also to remember that when Jesus came and bled and died on the cross, He didn't come to die just to save you and me who are believers here this morning, but to save all of His elect many of whom have not yet come to faith in Christ yet. They're still out there in the world. So when we celebrate the Lord's Supper and we're remembering the cross of Christ and the breaking of His bread and the the drinking of the cup, we are thankful for our salvation, but mindful that there are other sheep who have not yet been gathered in, both from Jews and from Gentiles. And we're to be mindful of the importance of the work of missions as an ongoing ministry. Because that's why He came to die. Not to just save a few, but to save all of His elect through all of the generations of this age. Some are still in the future. And so we're to be thankful and be praying, O God, may Your kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven.
And then finally, we should be mindful that this is a promise that one day He will come again. And when He comes again, He will separate the sheep and the goats and He will be the judge of the living and the dead. So there's a sense of urgency to the Gospel now. We are thankful that the Gospel has reached us and the Spirit of God has given us grace to believe. But there are others who need to hear as well. So it's both a thanksgiving, it's an understanding of the role of missions, and ultimately the second coming of Jesus Christ when all the saved will be gathered up to be with Christ in heaven forever. And those who are rebellious to the Gospel, who refuse to believe it, will be condemned to the lake of fire forever. So may God give us a heart for missions. That's the heart of Christ. That's why He came to die. And may He use us day to day as messengers to those who need to hear it. Again, this is for believers. So if you're a believer here this morning, we invite you to examine your own heart and then freely partake as the elements are passed. If the ushers at this time would please come forward. We will pass the bread. We break the bread as a beautiful symbol since we use unleavened bread of the representation of the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. We break it so that audibly we can in some way be reminded of the tearing of our Lord's body and flesh as they nailed Him to the cross as He as our Passover lamb was slain to save us from our sins. The great prophecy of Isaiah says He was crushed for our transgressions. The Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 22, when He had taken some bread and given thanks, He broke it and gave it to them saying, this is My body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Let us pray. Our Father, we do want to come before You today and thank You for Jesus Christ. Thank You for the Lamb of God. Thank You for the the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement which was alone able to take away our sins and to bear the full wrath of God to satisfy Your holy justice that any sinner, no matter how vile and wicked, no matter how shamed by a life of regret, who repents and turns to Jesus Christ, they too can receive the free gift of everlasting life. So Father, we thank You that Jesus has come to die for sinners like us and we remember Him and thank You for saving us from our sins. And we ask this in His name. Amen.